Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Contagion contained. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today to help us make sense of this banking crisis that is unfolding in the U.S. is Daniel Lacaye, Chief Economist at Tresses. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Maggie. How are you? Thanks for Um, having me. I'm doing well. Thanks. I'm so glad to have you with us today. So much has happened over the past three days. A lot of it is confusing for many of us. I know I have a lot of questions. Um, So before you even start for our listeners, uh, go ahead and you know what to do. If you have questions, put them in the chat uh, and we'll get to as many as we can. Um, So Daniel, just sort of tell me, you know, we saw the government step in, crazy weekend. We saw the government step in. The U.S. government stabilized the situation around Silicon Valley Bank, guaranteeing depositors and creating a new fund to provide loans to banks, not just that one, banks under stress. So what what is the state of the U.S. banking system here right now? How are you feeling about this situation? Well, uh, it's, it's very complicated because on the one hand, what you have is uh, a Federal Reserve that has announced uh, very rapidly that they will uh, provide enough support to make uh, the depositors not lose any money, which is looks like a good thing. However, what I think is, is, is a big challenge is how are we going to address the problem of, uh, of a U.S. financial system that has about a third of the deposits uninsured? So if this is an issue of one bank or two banks, well, then maybe it is manageable. But if suddenly the Fed pivots and decides to uh, cut rates or, God forbid, start quantitative easing yet again and inflation runs faster, then the problem is going to be not a manageable situation from the mismatch of assets and liabilities between of a couple of banks, but a problem of uh, rebasement of the entire, debasement by the way, of the entire asset base of the banking system. So I think that right now, what we can say is that this is likely to continue to affect a number of small banks, and it's obviously very evident in the share price performance of of, Mm -hmm. uh, some of them, and that uh, the larger banks can manage this this situation. But the the problem of these uh, unrealized losses in the sovereign bond portfolio is not going to be easily solved because it's a, it's a, it, it, usually in a crisis, you have in the asset base uh, a number of assets relatively safe that will be a cushion or that will hold valuation steadily and be uh, sort of a hedge against the more volatile part of the asset base. The problem in this crisis is that it's not just the re- evaluation of the assets uh, that have uh, uh, more volatility or that are riskier. But the the problem is fundamentally on the unrealized losses of hold to maturity sovereign bonds. And that is not a problem of Silicon Valley Bank alone. Right. Okay. So for people who may not be as uh who don't spend a lot of time thinking about both how the banking sector works and really the the sort of mechanisms of the bond market, of the U.S. Treasury market, which is what you're talking about. Um, when you're talking about holds and mature, you're talking about U.S. Treasuries, right? I mean, the idea yeah. was that that was supposed to be a safe asset or a safer exactly. asset. So it would be sensible that things like banks had that on the balance sheet. Explain to me what you just said about the debasement of of the entire system. So if they if they do, first of all, do you think, let's take one step back, pause that. Do you think the Fed will ease and do QE? Do you think that's where we're at now based on the fragility of the banking system? Let me start from that. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't okay. think so for a very particular reason. I think that the Fed is very aware 
that the problem that we're living right now is relatively manageable. Mm-hmm. However, I think that the Fed knows that if they do quantitative easing with the inflation problem that we continue to have and the challenges of the banking system continue, then it's not going to be a manageable uh, problem. So I think that that is the biggest, uh, I would say, I would say that it's the biggest risk. So I think that what the Federal Reserve is likely to continue to do is to say, we're going to maybe pause on the rate hikes, maybe be a little bit more prudent in terms of the uh, normalization of monetary policy. However, I find it very difficult to believe that they could implement a quantitative easing program, which is going to come at a very difficult moment because that quantitative easing program would likely uh, generate higher and would certainly create a much larger asset valuation problem down the line. Yeah. And and if they were to embark on something uh, on, on easing, is the risk that they would uh, they would lose credibility, that treasuries would lose credibility, that the dollar would be lower? How would that how would what would the negative impact of that look like? The biggest is loss of credibility. We remember in 2018 how uh, the Fed changing course already broke a lot of the uh, elements of, of, of trust on the monetary policy and normalization. Furthermore, when in 2018, the Fed changed completely its, uh, its stance on normalization, what ended up happening was that the uh, in perverse incentives to add more risk that have led to the problem that we're living right now, the, the problem of uh, Silicon Valley Bank and other small banks, um, actually started probably around that, that period when uh, the market realized that it was a really good bet to add more risk all the time mm-hmm. with a lower level of return against a lower level of return and lower yields. Yeah, and this is, so this, do you think that they have the Fed? So, so the idea of what could what the monster they might create if they move into the quantitative easing, uh, cutting rates problem, you think they're aware of and is far more risky than dealing with the present problem. Um, they've done that by insuring some depositors. Should they just insure all? Some people asking why haven't they just lock stock said we're going to insure every depositor in the U.S. It's very difficult to announce that for a very simple reason. About a third of all of the U.S. uh, banking system deposits are uninsured. So the moment that people start to make the the calculation of how much insuring the entire uh, unsecured, uninsured deposits of the banking system would take, one would immediately understand that it is A, impossible, B, it is uh, unsurmountable as a, as, a, as a cost to the financial system. Right now, as you see in the Federal Reserve uh, press release, what they're doing is that this, uh, the, the securing the deposits of these two banks is going to be um, covered by a f- higher level of assessment from the banking system, which is, as I said before, is manageable. If you do it with the entire financial system of the United States, that obviously would make it impossible now to to cover it from that perspective. So they're going to have to deal with this. Does that mean that we're going to have this rolling situation where people are going to be trying to figure out which the next bank is, and then we're going to have to see them go in and address that individually and try to get their heads around that. So it kind of is this rolling failure problem that they are trying to trying to ring fence as it happens. Absolutely. I think that what the Federal Reserve is looking at is how are markets going to adjust? When are valuations going to adjust to the current level of uncertainty? And is that something that uh, in terms of capital loss is uh, enough to be a real stress test. No, you know, that mm-hmm. banks do their stress tests 
but they're always under the most uh, dangerous words in economics, which are ceteris paribus, which means that uh, everything else unchanged and everything changes all the time and at the same time. No, so I think that what the Federal Reserve is is doing is 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 looking at how where does the capital base of the of the banking system stabilize. Hmm? And is that something that is going to mm, avoid a liquidity event, which I believe is the reason why they have implemented this first step policy uh, movement. No, um, If they had done what you just said, if they had gone out and said, by the way, everybody, don't worry, we're going to ensure all of the deposits of all the banking system everyone would have realized immediately that is impossible and you would have had a massive collapse in equity markets much larger than the one that we have seen today which is actually probably something that the federal reserve sees as acceptable the the today's today's correction and sort of stabilization so i think that what they are likely to look is at each case on its own Mm -hmm. They're mm -hmm. probably like everybody else, like everybody else is looking at First Republic. Is that something that is, uh, uh, that is likely to suffer a similar situation? Can we deal with that individually? Yes, fair enough. Next, move on. I think that that is, and to be fairly honest, uh, knowing how difficult it is to, to, to and that there's probably, this is like, this is like the I don't know the 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 uh, the, the devil's uh, choice. No, the, the probably none is is a, is the best one. But I think that what they're doing is probably the only way in which you maintain a certain level of confidence in a banking system that, in all other aspects, remains uh, re remains significantly robust. But think about this: this is the Fed knows that the, what has happened to Silicon Valley Bank and what has happened to the uh, other bank, I forgot his, its name today, uh, that, that, that collapsed, is, is their own doing. Is mm. that they, they... The Fed's own that, doing. Is the Fed's own doing. Mm. Because the Fed was the one that always the Fed and the, and the mainstream economists, et cetera, recommending that banks hedge and 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 stabilize their asset base with long-term right uh sovereign bonds which are supposed to be in a in a volatility environment <coughs> in a volatile market the ones that provide stability and value uh, support well what was the problem the problem was implementing negative real rates <coughs> and implementing massive quantitative easing in the year 2020 and 2021, which led to such massive overvaluation of sovereign bonds that in 2022, when rate hikes started, bonds were not a cushion or a haven, but actually as risky, as volatile, and as price uh, destruction uh, as the equity, uh, as the equity market, and that's why Silicon Valley Bank found itself in a situation in which, uh, by following exactly what uh, the Fed was saying, they found themselves in a valuation and capital trap. Think about this: a lot of people are saying that Silicon Valley Bank <clears throat> was imprudent because they didn't hedge the duration risk of their long-term sovereign bond portfolio. Fair enough. Why didn't they do it? Are they stupid? No. The reason why they didn't do it is because they heard, and they heard repeatedly from economists, from the Fed, from the international bodies, that inflation was transitory, that there was absolutely no reason to be worried about inflation, that it was just a base effect process problem, and that there was absolutely no need to change the path of normalization, which was much slower and much more, much more, let's say, benign. So what the what Silicon Valley Bank and the rest of these small banks did actually was to follow exactly what the analysis of the macroeconomic and inflation situation was coming from the Fed and its economists. Now, by the time that the Fed 
U turns and and admits that inflation is a monetary phenomenon and that they are stuck in a very large problem because inflation is persistent and elevated and they start to hike rates, by that time, it would have been monstrously expensive and probably impossible to hedge the entire long-term duration uh, sovereign bond portfolio, and uh, and they were stuck, uh, and, and it was too late, probably. So this is an incredibly important point, I think, um, because it really explains what's going on, because <clears throat> we talked briefly as we were coming on air, I think there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding, especially on Twitter. It's not helpful, and a lot of people throwing around all sorts of uh, you know, accusations as opposed to explanations, although they may be, you know, I don't know what the intention is, but um, that idea that they didn't hedge that interest rate risk, not because they were careless, but because of the messaging and basically, you know, w- what anyone would have done given what was being told to them by officials begs the question, who else hasn't hedged their interest rate risk? Um, how widespread is this problem? Um, presuming it's not limited to regional banks. I mean, we we saw bond moves last year that were unprecedented, according to yeah. so many people that come came on era. We just saw the two year yield move more than it has in three days since the 1980s. You know, since generationally, people haven't seen this. So, who else is unhedged in that way, Daniel? It, you know, how widespread is the problem in your mind? It's very difficult to know because we don't look at every bank individually, and it took uh, uh, it took a few a few weeks for analysts to find the level of uh, hedge that uh, Silicon Valley Bank had in itself. No? Mm. Uh, so it's very very difficult. But what I would guess, and it's an and it's just a guess. I might be what I would guess is that this is a widespread problem, that this is not something that is uh, the reckless risk management of a few crazy lunatics in California, is that uh, is that anyone, if you think about it, you know, not, not in real vision, all the, all the talent that you have and everything, and everything, but so many people out there bought and sold this completely ludicrous narrative that inflation was just transitory and that increasing the balance sheet of central banks to 20 trillion would not generate inflation. It was actually going to be phenomenal, etc. So if when you have such a consensual view, then it is very difficult for me to believe that uh, an asset that was perceived as <clears throat> the lowest risk in terms of price and the lowest risk in terms of uh, <clears throat> volatility would be uh, totally hedged. Well, think about. Uh, I'm, I'm just trying right. To, exactly. That's the think. other point. This was. This is a. This is. Why would you do the it? Of the building, the the, the, yeah, the business. Yeah. Yeah. It's if. Why would you do it? If you are a, actually, if you are a prudent risk manager, and you have. of the assets are uh, loans to small and medium enterprises, tech companies, uh, crypto companies, green energy, you name it, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And the other part, the other 50% is the stuff that the Fed buys, uh, uh, treasury bills and mortgage-backed securities. And the Fed and all the massive number of, of, of economists around the Federal Reserve tell you over and over again that inflation is transitory, that there's not going to be any risk of inflation and therefore no risk of massive rate hikes and therefore no risk of massive quantitative tightening. And at the same time, you need to take prudent measures so you keep unhedged the lowest risk asset sovereign bonds and mortgage-backed securities. And what you try to hedge in some form is the risky part of the asset base. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's like a barbell strategy, right? They have risky, Absolutely. right. Absolutely. You, and so so the, 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 the idea 
that uh, that that they're trying that I'm trying to I'm seeing some places uh, written about this imprudent risk management policy. Who would have thought that they would do this? No way, no way. And more importantly, like I said before, by the time that the Fed U-turns and starts to hike rates admitting that inflation is a monetary phenomenon and not a, a base effect uh, case. By that time, the cost of hedging the entire portfolio was probably too large because by then deposits were already coming down because the, what, 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 this is another part that people are not talking enough about is why did deposits start to uh, leave Silicon Valley Bank in precisely in 2022? One, the tech layoffs. Two, the loss of value in the marketplace of tech stocks. People started to need the deposits that they had in the bank and they were not aiming to utilize for daily purchases, etc. So the, all of that, all of that is the burst of the everything bubble that we have discussed a few times in yes. Real Vision. We had a massive bubble in sovereign bonds, a massive bubble in equity markets, and when both burst, there is no hedge. There is zero. That works, right. Is, that is the problem if you think about it. Yeah. So. So uh, and we did have we did have so many people talking about this, but people would joke and call us doom vision because <laughs> we had people sort of warning. It was just that no one knew when it would happen. This is really this is such an important. We're going to take the time to have this conversation because it is really important to understand what's going on, because there is this narrative and we have John mentioning it. So they're only going to bail out. That's questionable whether that that language around bailout is very, mm-hmm. I think, um, uh there's a there's a there's a lot of feeling around that. There's a lot of yeah. energy around bailout. And I'm not sure if that's the actual correct terminology for the moment, but I understand what you're saying, John. They're only going to bail out depositors of poorly run banks. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Melson asking, so why have risk management at all if all you have to do is listen to the Fed? I think it's more complicated that, than that, as you just laid out. And the important thing about this is, back to your point, it, if this was a barbell strategy in an environment where we've had falling inflation, Jeff Gunlick was just on television saying for his 40-year career, all there was was falling inflation or, or you know, gradually falling interest rates and inflation. So this was a this was the environment that people have modeled in and worked in. That may be gone now, but a lot of people don't have those models. You're suggesting, if 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 you are right, that it's not one poorly run bank, and that's what we should all be concerned about. This is a reset to a new regime where a lot of people are going to have this reckoning that they're either unhedged sure. for the reasons you laid out or the hedges don't work that they have on, correct? Very likely, but the person that asked this question must think, how do you hedge a portfolio of assets that may be volatile and that may be uh, in in risky businesses that you acknowledge are risky businesses like technology, biotech, green energy, of course, nothing bad with that. How do you hedge that? With a long position in sovereigns. So the the idea that they were unhedged because they were just listening to the Fed, but you should, but risk managers should not just listen to the Fed but do what's right. No, is that is that we're not understanding the, what what a bank is doing. Silicon Valley Bank sees its deposits go through the roof, its assets more than double in a couple of years. Okay, so what they do is. Is actually be prudent. This, this is the this is the amazing thing. So <clears throat> the point that I'm trying to make is the way that the Federal Reserve is acting, and I'm not going. I'm, I'm certainly not a staunch defender of what the Fed does, but the way that the Fed, Federal Reserve is acting is the only way in which it can act. And as he, he very well says, it's not that they're bailing out the depositors of the badly run banks. 
is that they acknowledge that it's not a question of being badly run, but a liquidity event created by an asset or a couple of assets, mortgage-backed securities and long-term sovereign bonds, in that is are not the fault of badly bad management. So the next step, in my view, is that the Fed will likely implement some form of uh, liquidity measure by which those banks that continue to hold long-term, hold to maturity sovereign bonds that are unhedged, what they're likely to do is to exchange them for one year, uh, even, even, even cash uh, type of, of, of instruments, uh, in order to prevent the liquidity problem. See? Yeah, that is likely. That is. I, th I think they've. Set, I think they're setting up a facility to do that. I think they're. I think they're already. They're already in the process of doing that. Um, so, when you're talking about holding, you know, the assets long long term U.S. Treasuries and mortgage backed, I can't fathom the amount of institutions that have those on their balance sheets. Are we, first of all, European banks? Are European banks at risk? And we have so many good questions in. We're going to get to yeah. them. Are European banks yeah. at risk? European banks are at risk because the the, the main narrative to, the, to to say that European banks are not at risk is European banks don't need to do mark to market and they have their uh, their own regulation by which they don't have these challenges. Yeah. Any hedge fund manager in America knows that you you do your own math about what is the uh, mark to market core capitalization of these of these banks there obviously there is a risk um, is the risk more contained than in 2008 absolutely it is absolutely it is 100% in the middle of 2008 what European banks were doing, and you can read it, for example, in in in, uh, uh, in uh, what was the, the the I forgot the name of the book, but Boomerang, Boomerang, okay, by Michael Lewis. And Boomerang by Michael Lewis, he he shows how it was German, French banks buying the assets that were bursting in the United States because they continued to be AAA. This is not a situation. This is not the situation right now. Right now, it's a situation of valuation of exist of the existing asset base. Is there a risk of contagion? There is, but it's not the same risk of 2008. And it certainly, and the position of European banks it is obviously there's there's a risk of of that uh, plummeting of of the value of of the asset base. But it is true that European banks have behaved phenomenally throughout the years of negative rates because they have increased core capital year after year and they have a number of of of, of cushions in terms of their ct1 uh, capital ratios that are way above in terms of of, of let's say uh, the ample level of of solvency compared with what they were in 2008-2011 but and this is an important one that does not mean and obviously you saw the performance today of the sx7e the banks uh, uh, in europe obviously if there is a, a a problem of that is created from the lowest risk asset to the highest volatility assets the risk obviously exists of a contagion mm -hmm. so what about uh what about institutions that are not banks? When, when, when we were talking about this and when people could sort of see this bubble coming, see some of these problems coming, one of the things we heard from a lot of the people coming through, a lot of the guests we had on was they were very good, very worried about uh, what you saw happen with the UK gilt market, that in the pension, in pension funds and in insurance companies and all of these different institutions that reached for yield in the same way that had to go and find uh, you know, ways to get yield so that they could cover their, that, that, that this was going to be a problem for them. Do you worry about that or does it not matter as much because they don't have that potential for depositors to do a run on that institution? Um, I, I can, I mean, obviously we have had alarm signs all over the place. Hmm? 
Uh, in Japan, it was the yen at 40-year lows. In the UK, it was the pensions, uh, the pension uh, burst uh, problem. Um, but do I worry? Absolutely, I do. Because the, the reason why I worry is because you mentioned it, you mentioned something incredibly important a few minutes ago, is we are in a market in which there are two generations of traders that have seen nothing but expansionary monetary policy and uh, cutting interest rates. So expansionary monetary policy, uh, increasing liquidity, cutting rates, and an environment in which it was, uh, it became uh, a mantra that printing money doesn't cause inflation and therefore you can do it forever and as much as you want. And they, they, even in the, in the, they created a new stu stupidity called MMT. Okay, fair enough. Uh, all of that is the, is the sign of a bubble hmm? because well, we, we know that it'll happen, we just don't know when. The problem is that when it happens, it happens at the same time. And this is my concern. My concern is that where is, where is, you don't have the possibility right now as a pension fund, for example, pension funds have been growing their exposure to equities, decreasing their exposure to bonds, but they don't have any any cushion in the bond uh, uh, in the bonds that they hold to maturity because they were buying negative yielding uh, re real negative yielding bonds. So the big pro the big problem of this is that is that there is no real alternative apart from owning you know, physical gold or something like that, but that's not something that is going to happen. The problem is that you cannot go back as a safe haven to the 19 trillion of uh, dollars of negative yielding bonds. That was the beginning of the problem. Accumulating 19 trillion of negative yielding bonds where pension funds were the safest and most conservative investors had to purchase because that was in their mandate, uh, extremely expensive bonds from issuers that had worsening liquidity and solvency ratios, expecting that the increase in price would compensate the loss of yield. That in itself, it's such a massive problem that it puts everything else you want to put the technology, uh, the non-profit technology side of the, of the spectrum, the venture capital to peanuts. The big massive problem in the financial world right now is that your hedge against volatility and your hedge against uh, the equity or venture capital risk was the largest bond bubble in history. Oh, wait, 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 say that again, because that's, that's, that's what we need to understand. The hedge against volatility. So this was what every single person was doing. Exactly. The hedge against volatility was what? It was 100-year Austrian bonds at 0.4%, for example. The biggest bond bubble in history. The, the biggest bond bubble in history. $19 trillion issued at negative rates. Spain, Italy, Portugal, all of those countries that we knew that were not in better but worse levels of debt to GDP, et cetera, issuing at negative rates because the central bank purchased 100% of net issuances. The, the, it, out of that uh, 19 trillion bubble, a significant proportion was in JGBs and the Japanese uh, bond market, a significant proportion was in Europe, but in terms of negative real yields, the United States also had a big problem. And what was the problem? That there was you, anyone, any prudent investor, did not have a way of analyzing whether the extent of that bubble, when the central bank was 100% of the demand for the net issuances of that paper. So, you know, uh, the government of, I don't know, Portugal or Greece issued a billion immediately bought by the central bank. You had no clue of what the secondary market was for those bonds. So when you start, you start by creating this massive misperception of risk in the market by disguising the risk of the sovereign bond 
to an extent that is so phenomenal that now, two years later, we, all of us, don't know whether two-year bond, the two-year treasury at 3.99 is a good or a bad investment. We don't know if it's cheap or expensive. We have no clue. We have no clue because there's because all of the lines that we had that were able that we were able to address to understand risk and value have been blurred by the insanity implemented in 2020 by central banks. And so so when you start from that premise, the largest bond bubble in history, the, the, the question that any pension fund, any investment fund, any hedge fund has, et cetera, is how do you hedge your risk? When I was in long short uh, equities and the, uh, and the mismatch between longs and shorts was higher than what's allowed by the risk manager, how did you hedge that difference overnight? With treasuries. Of course, the risk manager would just wipe out your beta exposure with treasuries. Would you do that today? That is the problem. The problem is that mm. he, is that the safe, low-risk asset is now as unsafe, high-risk, and volatile as your uh, equity exposure to cyclical uh, components. Wow, that's a really big. I mean, this is a this is you know we we have all been taught that that is that that's a safe haven. That's where you go for safety. So, should we expect to see more rate volatility, more sovereign rate volatility because of that? And then, what does that mean? We got a lot of questions about gold, as you can imagine. Yeah. Does Daniel from yeah. Max? Does Daniel see? this failure, and I'm not even going to say SVB failure anymore, let's say the bond bursting failure as a bull catalyst for gold. Oh, certainly, certainly, in relative and in absolute terms. Absolutely it is. So people, I've heard people today say uh, that didn't work during the great financial crisis because when people have to liquidate something, they will liquidate what they can. That will be gold. Gold didn't perform well then. Well, I would disagree with that. Gold didn't okay. perform well in absolute terms, not in relative terms. Okay. We were a king. And this is important because right. 2022 was similar. You know, everybody said, oh, gold didn't work in 2022 in dollars, but in euros, in yen, in pounds, in, okay. pe in pesos. <laughs> so we have to remember what we're living. We are living a global currency deba debasement situation in which the, ins the monetary insanity has gone so far that the only th the way in which implodes is slowly and at the same time. So there is no such that, thing. That's an important. That's an important point too, because that's yeah. what I'm thinking. Is there anyone who's better positioned? And I think mm -hmm. Ralph was alluding to this. In what countries would we not see the same extreme asset liability mismatch in banking that we've seen in the U.S.? But if we think about it less about banking and more about bond bubbles bursting, it's going to happen everywhere. Now, let me uh, go to one small point to this question. What are the reserves of central banks all over the world when they say that they own trillions of or billions of US dollars or euros? Sovereign bonds, treasuries. Treasuries. China doesn't hold mm, banknotes. China owns treasuries. So uh, the idea that there's no contagion risk, I don't need to tell people to go back to 2008 to 2001, I don't care. Huh? Okay. Of obviously, when the, when the lowest risk asset in the world, the US Treasury, and the lowest uh, risk currency in the world, or at least the currency with the, with the highest level of liquidity and highest level of, 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 of relative strength, the US dollar. When those two are uh, in, in turmoil, thinking that it's not going to affect Belgium, to say something, or Spain, or Italy, is not insanity, is irresponsibility. Because there is nothing that and this is an important factor. When we th if we go to the root of the problem, which was creating a massive bubble in sovereign bonds hmm, in 2020, 
uh, uh, no, not in 2020, into 2020, and then stepping the accelerator to maximum level. If we go to the root of the problem, then what you need to understand is that if you think that the Federal Reserve has committed some mistakes, the insanity committed by the rest of central banks is multiple times that. So uh, the most likely scenario is that we will see a spillover effect that the same way that happened two years after 2008 in Europe hmm, is likely to happen, but not because things move much faster, uh, is likely to move to Europe and is likely to move to other countries because the, <clears throat> the level of artificial capital construction that we have seen in this period of the everything bubble is going to net inevitably lead to a period of capital destruction. And that capital destruction can be moderated and contained to a certain extent, which is what I think is going to happen, but that doesn't mean that it is not going to happen. Yeah, and, and the issue here, so I'm thinking back to 2008, and listen, I think we all feel that same sense of anxiety because it's it's sort of bringing back so many sort of shadows and hints of that. But do you think this is 2008 and do you worry? Okay, you'll tell me why, but do you worry that there's a confidence? You know, it was all about like counter counterparty risk. You didn't know people hoarded collateral. At some point it jumps the fence and becomes a confidence and a psychology issue as much as it is a financial issue, right? Why I believe this is not like 2008. 2008, central banks and governments didn't care because they said, well, this is crazy people buying homes that they can't mm -hmm. afford. And this is the crazy hedge funds that are going insane in their position. Yes. So it was perceived as a private sector problem of excess risk. Oh, the difference in 2022 and 2023 is that the problem is in the, pro in, in the public sector. A real estate bubble Burst like, like a balloon, pricks. Hmm? Uh, tech bubble, the same, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How does a sovereign bond bubble burst? Slowly, uniformly, and probably with not a crisis in which we see GDP collapsing and etc., but with stagnation the risk is risk is and is in my opinion is the is that we enter a japanization situation of course because there is no central bank and certainly no government that is going to go out to the market and say oh and by the way um we are not going to provide liquidity for sovereign bonds what the mm. hell of course they're going to do it but what does providing liquidity mean printing more money what does printing more money mean stagflation stagflation is the risk or uh, is the way in which uh sovereign bond bubble bursts wow okay so it's it, we have an interesting debate going on i've heard different people throughout the day well respected people say that this is a massively deflationary event and i've heard people say this is a massively inflationary event mm. It's very How do you see it, or do you see it sort of in the middle of I, a sort of... I, I would start by saying one thing. When people talk about deflation, they talk about the inflation rate of 7%, then the inflation rate of 5 that is deflation. No, that is not deflation. Disinflation. Inflation <laughs> is, exactly. Disinflation is not deflation. Can we have disinflation? Yes. Can we have an environment of deflation, i.e. prices going down and below the 2019-2020 level? No. No, mm -hmm. because it's currency basement. Because the way in which uh, sovereign bubbles burst is through monetary debasement, monetary uh, implosion. And that means that the purchasing power of your currency 
weakens. So, so I think that yes, there may be some disinflationary process, but I always have to remind that this is unbelievable. I always have to remind people that inflation is accumulative and that a 4% on top of a 6 and on top of a 5 uh, is huge inflation. No? I always give this analogy to my students. If I gain 5 pounds in a year and 6 pounds in the other and 4 the third, I am not getting thinner. That is not this. this Daniel, this, just, you just described my holiday period. How dare you? So, <laughs> life, my life. I was describing my life. Mine too. That's sad. why I know. And that's why I know so much about inflation because I see it every day. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! I needed that little laugh because I, we're doing a series this week and. Um, well, this isn't really the name, but this week uh, we were supposed to be talking about how we were talked last week about how we're screwed. This week we're talking supposed to be talking about some solutions, but um, but uh, we've had to. I, I think we're sticking with the how we're screwed based on this conversation. No, but think about think about what I just said. It doesn't sound nice, but it doesn't. It sounds awful. It sounds awful, but it doesn't hurt, or people don't perceive that it hurts. We've lived stagflation. People my age. Very young, but you know, but but we've lived stagflation, and and you know, uh, people sort of uh, don't see it the same way. People, uh, I think that there is there will and there is a concerted effort by governments, international bodies, and central banks, so that it doesn't hurt. But when it doesn't hurt, it doesn't solve. That's mm -hmm. what we that we we need to understand and. And on the flip side, if you want to see some positives on it, the, the pain compared to what this would be if we had a domino effect of, uh, of, of, of collapses throughout the entire uh, financial system, according to the overvaluation of the asset base, mm -hmm. compared to that, so maybe it's, that is sort of a, are not good, but certainly not worse case scenario. Yeah, it could it could be much, much worse. It sounds like the category that falls into. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I want to throw up, we have somebody pointing out the massive move we've seen in yields. Um, I think we have a chart of the two-year yield. I mean, in three days, we saw a massive move. And there are a lot of yeah. people saying, this is the bond market telling the Fed they are done. They are done yeah. raising rates. Do you agree with that? So you think they're, will, will they try to, will they try to finagle something where you think they can raise rates at all? We've got a meeting coming up in March. Are yeah. they done raising rates? Well, uh, look at the chart. Hmm? The market has so-called so, so told the Fed that they're done three times in the chart that I'm seeing, three times, and it hasn't happened. So, and the reason why, and, and there's something, you know, I, I, we need to remember two things. Hmm? The first we've talked about in length, inflation. The other one that we've talked about is that the Silicon Valley Bank problem, the, all those uh, elements were already evident in the losses of the balance sheet of central banks themselves. Massive losses published, published, huge losses. So the European Central Bank unwound provisions to cover the losses, which is unheard of. Think about if about prudent management, risk management, think if any commercial bank had done that. Hmm? So the, 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 the point that we need to think of is <clears throat> that when this stabilizes, there is only one thing that central banks can do, which is reduce the balance sheet and increase and increase rates. So we might have a period in which they uh, sort of stop for a, for a while, but not what we have seen. If you look at the at the curve that the market the market implied Fed funds rate huh, has massively gone from hiking and then stable to hiking and then plummeting. But, uh, 
that I think is very, very risky in my opinion. And we, I, and we, so I would, I would assume that you based on that, think that uh, risk assets look risky here still. I mean, there's a sense that, oh, the Fed's done, maybe they're going to cut and that's going to underpin risk assets. Yeah. Well, the first thing that I, that I think we should not consider is a bullish signal in the middle of risk of bank runs yeah. all over the place. A bullish signal that the Fed cuts rates and even starts a quantitative easing program. And we all remember, we all have to remember, have to remind that from the moment that in the, that into the 2008 crisis, that we knew that the Federal Reserve was going to take action and that there was going to be a change in monetary policy from that moment until it started to come back, you had a good 20% of, of, of declines in capital markets and, and valuations were not as elevated as today. The only thing that I'm saying is the Federal Reserve changing course on rates and on liquidity because of a solvency and liquidity event in two banks so far is not a bullish signal for markets. Mm. It's not a bullish signal for markets. It may be a stabilizing signal for markets, but people, remember two, two generations of traders that have only seen expansionary policies. When people talk of Fed pivot as a bullish signal, they're expecting multiple expansion. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. Do you think that the large banks, the JP Morgan's, the Bank of America's, are going to benefit from this? Do they look like safe places to be as people move their deposits over? We have a question. Sorry, we've asked many. I, I forgot who asked it, but great question. What's your feeling on that? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. This the 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 constant um, the constant financial repression environment that we have lived is something that very large banks can endure, but uh, small banks are always suffering on the way in and on the way out, as we are seeing today. So, yes, uh, they benefit in relative terms. They benefit in relative terms. That doesn't mean that you're going to see those banks going up in value in the, the marketplace. Uh, that means that they actually benefit because if anybody is, going, you know, obviously, you know, who is going to be able, who can absorb unrealized losses in a bond portfolio? An incredibly large bank an incredibly large bank. So yes, in relative terms, they do benefit. And US banks, in relative terms, benefit relative to emerging market banks, even if they're large. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, watch that space for regional banks, because as, as people have pointed out, um, they're very important to small, medium-sized enterprises tend to use regional banks. Um, so, uh, and they also are very political because they're in states and politicians pay attention to their community and regional banks. So that's going to be very interesting to see that dynamic. Uh, question about corporate bonds. Uh, would you expect, given everything that's happening, to see defaults on the rise? Are we f finally going to see corporate spreads widen out because of this? Are you, are you looking at that space at all? Corporate bonds, spreads are widening, but not massively, which right. tells you that the risk reward in terms of solvency relative to price is slightly better in corporate investment grade bonds relative to sovereign. I think that that's what people are basically implying, which is not dissimilar to the 2011 European crisis, where people saw a much larger level of comfort in corporate bonds than in sovereign bonds themselves. <clears throat> which is amazing. So people what trust think, Apple's balance sheet more than they do the U.S. government. I would definitely. I would. <laughs> I would definitely. I don't know anybody else. Every, everybody else, but I would definitely, and certainly, and certainly <clears throat> in. Uh, in Europe and emerging economies. So I think that that space is relatively safer. And this is an important factor is that unlike um, in the previous crisis, uh, the, the corporate world in general in 2020 
had already started a deleveraging process, but in 2020 started to hoard as much cash as they could, improve their balance sheet as much as they could, repay debt. I mean, you you see it on the earnings uh, calls of quoted companies, uh, the, the the very large companies. It's incredible how they focus 100% on the on the credit market. They're always talking about their cash ratios, their cash flow, and their improvement in in debt. So. I think that investment grade looks a lot better. Um, I think obviously the the there is a challenge maybe in the uh, in the convert uh, bonds of some of the companies that can mm-hmm. be converted into equity and the banks obviously and uh, and you mentioned the most important part of the risk uh, area. In, in this in this environment is small and medium enterprises. Large companies are going to navigate the situation probably admirably, but small and medium enterprises are going to have huge problems because the credit crunch will likely happen fundamentally in the smaller in the smaller businesses. Which is so difficult, especially having gone through the pandemic where many of them also bore the brunt of um, exactly. Garcon was asking Earlier, can, can you define what we as simple uh, investors expect when we say soft versus hard landing? What should we see, feel, here? It's a great question. Um, but when you're talking about, and it's a perfect one talking about small and medium-sized enterprises, because at least in the U.S., um, they play a really important part, role in the economy. Um, we have a, a, a chart, if we can pull that up, of financial conditions, right? We saw the Fed's been trying to tighten fan, financial conditions by raising interest rates with quantitative tightening, um, trying to sort of have less money circulating around um, the economy. And th- this chart looks like a dramatic fall off in that. Mm. Given everything that's happened, do you do you think that we are going to see a steep recession, which is what I think people t- refer to Garcon when they're talking about hard landing? Um, mm. Is that is it more severe? Is it is it sooner now based on what we're seeing happen from this banking crisis? I think that I, I continue to believe this 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 idea of governments and central banks accepting a situation that is bad but doesn't hurt. Hmm? Mm-hmm. So we might not see, we, we might see a technical recession. We had a technical recession in the United States last year. But it, it, it and you have an evident loss of purchasing power of salaries and now deposits mm-hmm. as well. Um, that is, that is the path. That is the path, is gradual impoverishment. Uh, and widespread. So it's it might be a situation in which you don't have a crisis, which is which is a massive contraction of credit for the entirety of the economy, good and bad uh, uh, businesses and families. Uh, and when I'm saying bad or good, it's not uh, morally. Is I'm talking financially, uh, financially solvent. No. Um, you might have a situation in which precisely because the problem, the, 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 the root of the problem is the sovereign bond bubble, is that it just, it just permeates slowly and widely throughout, uh, throughout society in a way in which it doesn't look like a crisis only because it's spread out uh, for, a few, for a few more years. No? That's so interesting because it's not what we've been used to, right? We've been used to these sort of deep V's, right? These sudden jolts and then these sudden. So, um, is there any way we can all avoid gradual impoverishment, Daniel? Yeah, uh, the, the, those V-shaped recoveries that we talk about—they're painful, but they—but the, that is the reason why the United States has three point. 5% unemployment and the European Union has 6.8 hmm? is is that it, yes it's it's very tough when you get into a crisis but the crisis works as a way of cleaning up a lot of the excess of the past and then the economy is so dynamic that it recovers quickly and it recovers quicker in terms of employment in terms of salaries etc and the and the and the end game is better off 
for the, the economy. But that doesn't seem the, it seems that there is a widespread view among political economists that it's better to go the Japanese or the European way than the US way. I, I disagree entirely. I have been had the, I don't know if the, the opportunity, but certainly the, it was a coincidence of living the financial crisis in the United States. And I saw the economy recover dramatically and very, very fast and very well. And I saw the European economy drag on for another 10 years. Mm. So I don't, I prefer V-shaped recoveries. We cannot avoid the, 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 I think that the question is, can we avoid a crisis? You cannot avoid a crisis. You, you, can, you can prolong it. You can extend the problem, but then it becomes larger. That's why I think that what the Federal Reserve is doing with all the, the questionable and, 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 and criticizable elements that they have done in the past, that's why I think that what they're doing is the right thing right now. Mm -hmm. But the right thing and in the devil's, uh, the devil's uh, uh, choice, no? Yeah. Uh, well, but, part of it, I yeah. think you hit on it. It's also not, you know, the solution is never just going to be about the Federal Reserve. You need political. You call the political economists. I would suggest maybe it's just political. Um, the political side of the equation on board, too, with and the monetary very, side. And that is a very good point. Because, Maggie, think about this. This is the first inflationary crisis, and this is going to be the first burst of a sovereign bond bubble in which governments pay no attention to what is happening and continue to increase expenditure, increase deficit spending. Yeah. Uh, and win elections. That's what it's about, at least for the moment. Um, exactly. Daniel, I want to, you, you've been so generous with your time and it's, I, I, we really just wanted to go longer today because it's so important that people understand this um, so that they can wrap their head around it and hopefully think about what it means to their own portfolio. So let's end on that. Um, you know, it's, we can never say what should investors do because everyone has a different risk profile. Everyone, you know, is at a different age. I mean, we can't possibly know that, but are there ways to protect yourself in this environment, you know, we talked about gold briefly. Is this a hard asset environment? You know, how how should investors be thinking about this and be thinking about maybe changing their framework for what sounds like not only a challenging period but maybe a new regime that we're in? Yeah, I think I think that you're you're right. You need to have hard assets. You need to have uh, you need to have. Uh, decorrelated assets. Very few assets have been decorrelated and gold is one of the very few. You need you need to have dollar exposure because yes, the dollar is weakening now and it's a little bit stronger before and all of that. But relative in relative terms, if we are in a currency debasement situation globally, there is no, uh, in, a, in a fire, there is no other house with more rooms and more and more uh, doors and windows, which is the US dollar. So you need to have US dollar, you need to have, and, and you need to really, really think long-term. And like between, in the, like in 2008, 2009, we are going to be creating in the next three to four months, the best opportunities in uh, everything that is disruptive. I, you know, in, moments like this, markets tend to give you the siren call that makes you think about inside and to the past. So look at old businesses, uh, sort of uh, things that we think are going to be there forever. And in my opinion, you actually have to do the opposite. In my opinion, you actually have to start to think about what is going to be the next Apple, the next uh, uh, Amazon, uh, the next uh, the next opportunities of disruptive uh, opportunities in healthcare and aging, which are a key theme for me long term. Mm -hmm. Technology, but with profits, not not PowerPoint presentations with with colors. Mm -hmm. And in uh, everything that has to do with, uh, not with ESG 
the way that people have constructed it, but with efficiency, with improvement of uh, the, the living conditions and the use of uh, resources. Everything that has to do with those things, to me, are things to look at for the so long So it's so interesting. You're not shying away from innovation, from tech. You're just being picky about where you're looking, yeah. understanding the balance yeah. sheets, and kind of, again, back to that barbell, are decorrelated. You want you want a little bit of everything, like yeah. truly diversified. And obviously, and obviously understand that if there's, if there's a panic, everything is going to fall. Mm. But, but the, and the reason why it's important to have dollar gold exposure is because it gives you a little bit of comfort to look for long-term opportunities in periods of panic. So uh, I'm not in, I, I personally find no interest whatsoever. And obviously somebody might tell me the opposite, but in, in, in the, uh, in some of the obsolete and, and uh, allegedly uh, long-term value names, yeah? there are a lot of value traps, but I, I like the concept of value from the perspective of what really value is, which is these are businesses that are worth something, that have good assets and that have good cash flow generation, et cetera, and that they are going to be the leaders that take us out of this mess because we will get out of this mess, by the way, I'm going to end on a positive note. It's in my, it's in my book. We're going to get out of this mess better. Huh? I'm, I guarantee everyone that the next year is going to be the best in humanity. And the way to do it and the way to get out of this mess is not by looking inside and at the past, but outside and to the future. Well, I'm glad you gave us that glimmer of optimism, <laughs> Daniel, at the end. I think we all need it. But there was so much wisdom in there. And I think I certainly feel like I have a sort of better understanding of the landscape. And I think a lot of us in our gut felt like this was way bigger than SVB. I think we know that, but I think you really helped lay that out for us. So, so appreciate you um, and on all the time that you gave us today, even though we didn't ask, we just kind of went long, but it felt like it was important given all the questions we were getting. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you so much, Maggie. I enjoyed it thoroughly. And we will be back, as you know, where this is what this platform and this company was built for, is to try to arm people with as much information in these really stressful times. So we've got flash updates happening. Uh, Ash is going to be back at 10 a.m. Eastern Live tomorrow um, to continue to sort of push ahead to what to look for. I'm going to do an Ask Me Anything an hour later at 11 a.m. with Mike Green. Um, so you definitely want to tune in for that. Um, bring your questions. We're going to do what we did with Daniel, just try to unpack this, get his thoughts about what this all means and how we all need to think about it vis-a-vis uh, -vis our portfolios. Just hit that QR code if you're not already a member and you can find out how you can join us for all of that. Thank you for your time and your great questions. Take care and good luck out there, everyone. If we want to change the outcomes for this really screwed up world, where our wages don't go up, where we're being replaced by technology, where governments are massively in debt and we foot the bill via taxes, where we see debasement of assets so we can't afford as many assets as we like. So the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. If we don't like to see the rise of populism based on this broken society because the promises of the future have been broken, let's make our promises to our future selves come right. And that's by unfucking your future. Some of this is going to really f*** your future in 20 or 30 years' time. But we've got time to figure that out, because it's unstoppable. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.